what's happening, my darling Judy Flo Real? Welcome to Hangry and Horny. Thank you. A long time overdue. Mm-hmm. So we're in Northern Ireland at our home in Bangor, and we've been talking about podcasting and sharing your story to the world for what seems like ages. We've been through a pandemic, and uh, so much has happened but we're finally here, and why don't you just share to the world who you are, how we met, whatever you want. <laughs> um, hi. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for asking me out. Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah, we have a, a running debate on who asked who out for our first date. <laughs> uh, so we met through Scott Riley, Causeway Living, Wim Hof instructor. He had his Dash and Splash event, which was happening every Sunday. And uh, so I'd known Scott for a while and just been pretty much flying over to Ireland to visit him. And, uh, you know, we had met on the beach at one of his events, cold water immersion, breathing. And, uh, you know, I don't know. Basically, we, we were chatting, right? I, I, want, I want you to give your version of the story. But my version is you asked me out. <laughs> I looked at Scott and I said, did she just ask me out on a date? And he was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> Not verbally, but he just shook his head up and down like, yes, she did ask you out. But, uh, you know, it depends on who we ask, whether it's a girl or a guy. <laughs> you know, it's like most girls are like, no, nah, she didn't ask you out. And all the guys are like, yeah, he, Judy <laughs> asked you out. Well, I was being polite. We didn't get We wanted to chat. We'd had a conversation. Um, and I remember looking back at... Um, the dates and it was the 11th of the 11th 2018 so we had that conversation and you were saying you know stop thinking what's the worst that can happen you got to think what's the best that can happen and it was like a light bulb moment in my head because I was like of course if I'm saying what's the best that can happen my subconscious will focus on that and it will dwell on that and it will think of all the good possibilities because my brain was so conditioned for so long to always think what's the worst what's the worst and I lived my life that way and a lot of times I had to overcome so much fear to do something new to kind of break out of that kind of fear mindset. So I was doing my best to do that and really facing a lot of fears. And then I was saying it to you in that first conversation. You were like, no, think what's the best that can happen. So the light bulb went on. And then a few weeks in, I was like, geez, this, this phrase has just been going around my head constantly. I was telling everybody about it, friends, family, clients at work, anybody that would listen about, you know, thinking about what's the best that can happen. And um, I heard that you guys were going back to America and I thought, I've got to let you know. And I thought, right, I'll send you a message. You'll never see it. It goes in one of those weird folders and Facebook you know, if you're not friends and like you replied straight away and we had a bit of a conversation and it was just, you know, just a nice little conversation. There wasn't anything there. There wasn't any other motive, but just to say thank you. And, uh, we didn't really get to chat the next couple of dash and splashes and, um, you stayed on rather than leaving cause you were supposed to leave. Um, but you stayed on for a few more weeks and then, the week that we did get a little bit of a chat, it was the first time I noticed your hearing aid. 
And I was like, oh, geez, the acoustics in this building are awful. I can barely make out conversations. I don't know how you're, you know, managing it. Um, so then I was like, oh, I'm sorry, we didn't get to chat. Maybe we could chat somewhere where we could hear each other better. And then that's what I said. That was me being friendly and polite. Yeah, but you forget the part afterwards where we were leaving the <laughs> building. We were leaving with our friend Ivan and Scott. And we were parting ways. You were going in the direction with Ivan. I was going in the direction with Scott. So staying with Scott. And then basically that's when you said, let's meet up at some point, you know, for like a cuppa, right? And, uh, Which is so funny because my brain doesn't remember that bit. Yeah, well, I remember that, chatting, but I don't remember saying that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then we so, parted ways, said goodbye, and then I looked at Scott and I said, "Did she just ask me out on a date?" And he was like, "Yep, uh huh." So I was like, "Thought so," and maybe I was just a little cocky there, but I just, uh, you know, I just felt like, wow, she just asked me out and <laughs> she was showing interest. <laughs> Because I do remember that part when we were in the cafe and it was loud and uh, so much was happening that we didn't really get a chance to like chat, you know, because you had mentioned about like having a chat then. Mm. And uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's just pretty funny uh, human nature anyways, how people only remember uh, based on their own lens on how they view the world. Right. And uh, honestly, for me. Uh, my memory isn't the best, so I'll give you that. Uh, just because I've been living, I guess, in a condensed version of life because of traveling and meeting so many people and having so many conversations. Um, you know, you 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 kind of kind of compress everything, and so my version of reality may not be the same, you know, as like yours per se, obviously, but. Um, yeah, I just, that's, that's how I perceived it, you know, and it's always our like running joke, but the long story short, we ended up getting married during the pandemic, which was, you know, so beautiful. Like everything came together, even though there was a lockdown, um, initially, you know, we were in Hawaii in February, just as the, uh, the word of the this nature of a virus that was coming from China. We were on vacation in Hawaii. That's when I like proposed to you the first time. And uh, you said, absolutely. And I was like sitting there going, absolutely what? And you said, absolutely, yes. And you're in tears because you thought I was like joking, you know. And uh, the deal was I just didn't have the engagement ring at the time. So I gave you a, a miniature pineapple pie. And uh, but yeah, so we came back to the mainland in California. You flew back to Ireland and then that's when the full global lockdown happened in March. And so we were together for how long? Four months. It was that long. Uh, March, April, May. Oh, no, three. Three, three. months. Yeah, yeah. Three, yeah. So the moment like that four. there was, <laughs> yeah, the moment that there was a lift, a partial lift, my mom just looked at me. We were in San Francisco, uh, Daly City specifically, and she just said, just go, go be with your, your fiance, your honey, you know? And I, I'm like, sure. Cause I, I, I pretty much was making sure my mom 
was okay. There was so much happening with, uh, you know, looting and uh, assaults. And I think during that time was, uh, I'm not sure if that was like the Black Lives Matter stuff was happening with George Floyd, but there was a lot of uh, mayhem going on. And um, so anyways, yeah, I just got the blessing of my mother and I hopped on the plane and uh, miraculously came over to Ireland and, you know, we got married and I think it was September. I better remember that, <laughs> 24th. And uh, the process to get in our uh, marriage license and the visa and everything was just so miraculous. Totally. Yeah. So what was your perspective during that time, you know, when... Uh, we were in Hawaii and then, you know, come back here and all of that unfolds. Well, the, the pandemic, the um, Hawaii was incredible. Never been somewhere so beautiful and really did feel so magical. And you'd said to me a few times about, you know, Hawaii makes or breaks a couple. Um, and something about the energy that's there and just how beautiful it is. And I remember initially actually struggling a little bit and feeling so paranoid um, and very self-conscious and not relaxing. Um, and then I don't quite know, I think you helped me and we just kind of, I just snapped out of it and then just relaxed and totally enjoyed it and just was just in awe of just how amazingly beautiful a place it was. You know what I mean? And we just had such an amazing time. Um, it really was beautiful, really beautiful. Um, and then to go from the contrast, you know, back home, back working, just getting on with life, chatting every day on the phone. And then all the lockdown stuff happening that was crazy. You know, it was hard because everything suddenly changed. You didn't know when it was going to end. It did was scary. It wasn't, you know, you weren't too sure who to believe, what reports were coming through, how bad it was going to be, the whole thing. It really was quite, yeah, just hard I find it hard I felt very isolated you know in the apartment by myself um most of the other neighbors are elderly um well they are actually are they're all, all older than me or elderly so there was a fear there because I was the young one you know 40 and I'm the young one in the building kind of thing you know you could see them you like flinch if they you know saw each other in a corridor went out to the bins or something like that and you just think oh this is mad madness absolute madness and then having my birthday in April by myself you know, 40th birthday by myself. Thankfully, at that point, um, a friend was um, needing support. He was a, a, had rented out the walled garden at Helens Bay and was, you know, making all the organic vegetables there um, and really needed assistance, lost most of the staff. So um, I was like, well, I'm happy to volunteer, you know what I mean, to make sure that all those crops didn't go to waste and all the um, seedlings and everything that he had planted. So that was a real miracle to have that sanctuary there really enjoyed it it was it literally was a lifeline you know what I mean and get out in nature every day and get your hands in the soil and have this lovely little bubble a huge garden an acre space you know usually there's only two maybe three of us bumbling around doing that it was incredible and that really helped to I think grind me through it um otherwise I think if I'd been in the, the apartment the whole time by myself not really doing very much out I would have struggled definitely um 
Yeah, it was a crazy time. And the weather was great, right? Weather was amazing. Like amazing. I think there was a stretch of, I think, 90 days where we didn't have rain, which is a miracle in Northern Ireland. Um, and uh, trying to water that garden and make sure all the, the vegetables still grew was sometimes would take me three hours just to water that whole space. It was huge. Um, but yeah, the weather was amazing. Um, but it's amazing as well. It's like, it's so much about how you see things, how you frame things, what you focus on. Um, you know, and at so many different times, there was just the blessing that I needed or people got in touch. Lovely little stray cat we've called Smoky Blue ran up to me one day in the in the car park has been our little pal ever since just lives across the, you know, we see it from our bedroom window where he lives now. You just think, you know, there's all these lovely little gifts that the universe sends whenever you need, you know, comfort or connection or a bit of love, just a reminder that, you know, things are good. Um, and I think for me, what I saw during the pandemic is that it really brought out people's worst, but also brought out people's best. Um, and yeah, it's very much about what you focus on. Um, so sometimes, yes, I did struggle, but it was also that, right, okay, you know, pick yourself up. You can't focus on that. This is positive. We'll get through this. Um, and don't give in to that fear and focusing on that fear. Um, because it was there and it was very real and you could feel it off so many people. You know, if you went to the supermarket, um, even walking along the coastal path here, people were scared. People would f physically flinch, you know, when I was walking past. And sometimes that gets to you, you know, if you're kind of just in your head the whole time. Um, and then sometimes you're like, OK, just have that compassion and go, well, they're obviously in a really struggling space. They feel maybe isolated, very scared, maybe really lonely. Um, I mean, and I made sure I would normally do it anyway, but I kind of made extra sure that when I did come up, you know, walk, you know, walk past people that I would say hello or I would smile. Um, you know, and so many times, you know, older people just really wanted to chat and just thought, yeah, they're probably locked in their own home by themselves. This is their one stint to get out because we were restricted down to one hour, you know, outside exercise a day kind of thing. Um and then so many times had these lovely conversations with complete strangers that I've never met since. Um, and I think it's, yeah, when you have that time, you know, to be able to love others along the way, you know, you don't know what they're going through. Um, and so many times that we're blessed and it's lovely to be able to have the chance, and the opportunity to bless other people. So. Yeah, it was a, it was a very... Uh, intense time mm. you know for sure and it was uh interesting to sort of look back where we are now and there's some sense of normalcy right now um hopefully that continues the uh, mental health aspect has been very devastating for many people on multiple levels whether they lost a loved one mm. to the pandemic um, a lot of controversy, you know, um, a lot of censorship, but I think the biggest thing was just the hardship it was for people to be, uh, isolated. A lot of the, uh, misinformation was also difficult, but, you know, when we look back to before the pandemic, as it was unfolding, I mean, I remember being on the airplane on the way to Hawaii. And a fellow was sitting next to me and he was going to be transferring to another flight to head out to Guam. So it was really cool to chat with him 
because I spent 18 months in Guam and, uh, you know, it was really cool to just through conversation to have these memories come up, but he was wearing a mask. And so, you know, it was even like full blown yet. And he was already afraid, mm-hmm. um, and understandably f- so because Guam is very close to Asia and, uh, there's a lot of flights going in and out, uh, to China. So, but, um, you know, we were in our little paradise in Hawaii and uh, that was beautiful. What was, so back to like what you were saying about framing things in life and your focus, what was going on with you when we had that conversation and you're saying, you know, I, I think you were saying um, that you were facing your fears, mm-hmm. right? And that you were saying, well, what's the worst that can happen? And that's when I, I heard that. Mm-hmm. And so f- the reason I said that to you was because I had heard a sort of Good Morning America program and they're interviewing a, a young lady and she had, I think she wrote a book about facing her fears. Uh, I thought the book title was, uh, what's the best that can happen? Um, not sure what it was, but she did say that, that for every day, for I think something like three months or a whole year, I forget what, but she did a fear a day. Mm-hmm. And she said that she had to reframe because she remembers saying that to herself was the worst that can happen. And of course, immediately your your brain, your mind will go, oh, death yeah. or shame. And that she caught herself in that moment. And she's like, why would I say that to mm-hmm. myself? And that's just kind of what everybody says, right? And we don't even realize the words that we use because it's just lingo in society and culture. So that that when my light bulb went off, because I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. Like she would always say to herself, what's the best that can happen? So when you said, what's the worst that can happen? I was like, uh-uh. <laughs> and I remember your eyes, your eyes lit up and you're like, Wow, that's so brilliant. So what happened after that conversation we had after Dash and Splash in that cafe? Well, for me, it was that light bulb moment. It really was a big mental shift. And I remember coming back from Dash and Splash and I wrote it on my chalkboard in the kitchen and it's still there. I mean, how long is that? Three, three and a half years ago? Mm-hmm. You know, it's still there. Um, and... It was just one of those shifting moments because I, I I focused on it for for you know for such a long time it was just there and I was saying it and saying it and saying it again, and then funnily enough, um, because like when you did actually like sent me the message and say about going on a date, I like straight away panicked, like proper panicked, you know I hadn't gone out with very many people I'd had a an abusive violent marriage. Um, it was like the main relationship that I'd had in my life um, at that point. And it was just so hard. And I was petrified at the thought of going out with somebody. I, like I wanted to be with somebody, um, you know, wanted to, you know, have, you know, to get married again, have a family, all of that. But the thought of somebody having expectations, the thought about going on dates just literally petrified me. And I remember like crying my eyes out 
just scared and I'm you'd said about doing something I think it was Thursday I worked like a full long shift on a Thursday so I couldn't have done anything and um, you know not finishing work until like half ten at night so um so I just was like no I'm sorry busy blah 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 you know what I mean and then carried on crying and then was like Judith you've been saying for weeks on end here and to everybody that you know what's the best that can happen and I was like you need to say when you're free stop being so scared say when you're free and if you hadn't have said that phrase I wouldn't have written back you know in the thought of it it was just it was just too scary so I did write back and then you're like oh, all right okay you know what I mean and it was you know that's how it happened and just think I wouldn't have given that an opportunity I would have avoided it and then you would have spent your time here went off to America and who knows what have happened um and it was interesting as well because I was at that point I was facing a lot of fears every time I came across something that I was scared of I would do it you know like it could be a big thing it could be a small thing you mean I remember um at a play park with one of the kids and you had this huge slide where there's like a big drop down where you you basically don't hit anything till about two meters down it's like a full free fall drop and then and I was like gotta do it I st- and I I hesitated just before I l- jumped off and of course I hurt myself bruised myself on one side because I landed on one side going down but it was like I did it do you know what I mean and it was like it was doing those things whatever it was that did scare me and my mindset was well what's the worst that can happen I'm just scared I'm gonna do it anyway but to really shift it and think what's the best that can happen was just just totally reframed it you know and I think you mean for so many so many times it is that reframing that changes everything just changes everything. You mean how you feel every day, how you function every day, um, how you function with people every day, and how that, you know, because I'm, I don't know if like empath's the right word, but I would really pick up on people's energies and really pick up on, you know, how they're feeling. Um, uh, particularly if somebody's like annoyed or irritated, my brain would always be like, oh, what have I done? It's my fault. Why are they grumpy? If I said something, da da da, you know, and it would be constantly on that kind of negative lip. And since trying to change it and think, well, what's the best that can happen? Half the time, it's like, actually, there's nothing to do with me. They're just having a bad day. And actually, in some ways, it's a bit of an honor that they can really show their true colors and be themselves. If they're grumpy or if they're feeling down, if they're angry, whatever it is, I'm allowing them to have that space. But before, I would have kind of like, oh, and got all like, try to fix everything um, rather than just letting it be, letting them be, um, and giving that space and not taking on a whole lot of stuff that's nothing to do with me. Um, and sometimes I absolutely nail that and sometimes I don't, you know, but it's happening, you know, I'm, I'm getting better on that journey and getting better figuring out myself um, and not holding myself back as much. Um, it's definitely still a process. It's definitely still a journey. Um, you've been great for that. You know, I mean, there's so many times where you've just said something and it just helps you to flick out of the little negative lip in my head. Um, you mean, and I love getting outside, but sometimes I do need to kick up the bum and you're like, come on, do it outside. Do you know what I mean? And it's been so good recently where we've been getting up first thing um, before having breakfast, or whatever, just get outside. You know, before we used to always like stick our head out the window, get the sunlight in our eyes, but now like going out for that walk just changes the whole start to the day which means it just changes the rest of the day and then I love at night time going for a walk looking at the stars like how often have we done that now 
we just go down to the local park and it's usually clear skies even if it's not a clear sky it just really helps for me to settle me I find that I sleep so much better um, and when I've got that kind of restfulness before I sleep when I do sleep I sleep so good but then I also dream I mean remembering dreams is amazing I'd like I never did that until recently I mean very few times I would have remembered anything that had happened or I dreamt about um, yeah it's exciting what was going on you know like I said you were already on a healing journey and path you had talked about having a abusive marriage that you got out of ended up you know coming back home to Northern Ireland where you were born which you were very reluctant mm. but somehow as far as I remember you said that the universe was drawing you back home and there is something special here Hawaii has always been my home uh, although I grew up in California it was a place it's still like this feeling that is magical as you said and I wanted to share that with you but Northern Ireland the same been trying to keep that a secret <laughs> and uh, just because you know the people here are very kind the the conflicts that have happened over centuries in Ireland through different invaders and then obviously culminating to the conflicts that had happened uh, in Ireland uh, you know with the sort of complicated you know UK government and the Irish people and then there is also the religious component with the Protestants and the Catholics it's it's very convoluted and you know I'm only now after living here for a while starting to understand the history and the culture uh, the way people speak but tell us what was going on because at the time that we met you were working at a flotation center which is also known as a sensory deprivation tank where you uh, lie in salt water about body temperature skin temperature actually and um, in complete darkness obviously there's options to do it with light but the whole point is to cut off any uh, input from the outside world and to be lying in a buoyant state um, and be with yourself in isolation with your thoughts your mind and um, so for me you know having that experience it's like meditation on steroids hmm. and uh, so you were a manager at uh, Hydrease and um so you're you're already again on that healing mm. path so sort of tell us how did you end up there and like why what was going on with your mental health mm. um i suppose you have to go for me it would be right back to the start you know i, I grew up during the troubles was born in 1980 um my dad was uh, working for a, for the police force, which was called the RUC, um, and I mean it was a it was a difficult time. It was a scary time. Um, Mum and dad tried their best to, you know, shield us from it, 
Um, and there are things that I didn't understand until I was an adult and going, oh, right, that's what was happening. You didn't realize sometimes just the, the danger that we were in as a family. Um, we were actually threatened as a family and had to move. That's how we ended up going from the West Coast to the to the East Coast. Um, but they, there's so much of a history um, with my mum and dad. Um, both both sides of the family had had very violent, abusive, traumatic backgrounds that had gone on for generations. Um, I don't haven't gone too far back in the family history, but we think it's gone back for at least four generations on both sides. So, I mean, it was... I suppose for them it was hard because, you know, they hadn't healed themselves. They hadn't had the knowledge to really go through and have the tools to heal themselves. So when they came together, even though it was, you know, in love and, you know, wanting the best things, actually in, it, in the end it brought out the worst. Um, and it was a scary home. It was a scary home to be in. Um, and that was day and daily. And that's hard, living in fear basically every day. That's hard. And it takes a toll and, you know, sometimes it's not until you can unravel different parts. And it's it's like that onion, whether you get rid of some of like the bigger layers, but there's still, you know, layers and layers and layers inside. Um, and sometimes I would have got despondent with that um, on the healing journey. But I think it's like, well, we're always there. All of us are going through whatever, how dramatic your past has been we're all grappling with the same issues, you know, fear, abandonment, isolation, rejection, trauma, anger, yeah, anger, trauma, um, guilt, resentment, bitterness, revenge. It's all the same stuff. It's all the same emotions. And, you know, I mean, we can all get stuck. And I think for me, it seemed to be emotionally, I got stuck at different times where something big had happened early on and it always seems to pull back right into that early childhood sometimes it's like when I was three when I was four when I was five and it seems to kind of like pull me back into different different moments and when you're able to sit with it and go well what happened why do I feel like that what was that about and just sit with it um and I learned a technique through different people I think Viv at Hydries and also um really good author uh, Edith Edgar who wrote about the the gift no, the first one, the first book she wrote was The Choice. Um, she was a Holocaust survivor. And basically she was like, you have a choice. Any situation, even in a concentration camp, you have a choice. Because you choose what you focus on. You choose how you're going to frame that day. You choose what you let your imagination go to. So even if you're locked and you're tied and you can't do anything, you can still choose your thoughts. You can still choose what you focus on. Um, and she, she, she talked about different techniques where basically you go back into those situations and it could be like younger Judy, let's say three years ago, but it could be me when I was really small. And I basically just go as the adult and go, I'm here for you now. You know, little Judith, I'm here. I'm, I'm your adult self. You mean, and basically like take my little, take little Judy under my arms, you mean, and, and be the adult and be what I didn't to get what I didn't get what I needed at that time and it's been so healing because I can do it myself I don't need any you know big therapist or a big appointment or whatever it's just me helping myself it's like everything I need is here and I think sometimes for so long I believed I was broken I truly believed I was broken I also believed that 
if I could heal and I could heal everything up, that I would have scars and everybody would still see the scars and I would never be whole. You know, I'd look at other people and just think, oh, you've had such a nice childhood. You've had such a nice start in life. You've got loving parents. You've got a loving family. You mean, you've really not got anything to worry about. Um, you mean, and that was kind of like that more immature mind and going, actually, you no, know, everybody, we've all struggled with different issues. Doesn't matter how big or small they are. Um, but it's knowing that you're, you're your own savior. Do you mean, I kind of felt for so many times and I was part of lots of different religious organizations for years um thinking that you know that's the way that's where I'm going to get healing that's where it's going to be and you almost think that you're going to get to a point where it's like one day I'll be healed and you'll have the big banner and there'll be a little party and you're like I'm done now thanks guys I'm there and then I can go and and my heart was always to help other people um and actually realizing that it doesn't work that way. There's never a day that comes out you're perfect. If it, if you do realize that you've got to that perfect stage, you're not here on the earth anymore because <laughs> you're you've done what you needed to do. Um, and I think um, uh, we were chatting with um, a friend who's also, um, you know, a really good, incredible person that's helped us on our journey, our healing journey. Um, we call him Double A Matt. And how he was saying, because I'd focused for so long on being a perfectionist. And I think it was a control thing because I wasn't in control of what went on when I was so young that I just tried to control everything else about myself. And I was such a perfectionist. Um, and it's been the rod that I beat myself up with many, many times. Um, and he was like saying, it's good enough for now to know that it's good enough for now. And to really believe that and really accept that. And that's been going in my head the last few days about it's good enough and it's good enough for now. Um, and there's quite a shift. And funnily enough, I've made my first ever thing with a sewing machine, um, the tiniest cushion in the world. But, you know, there's lots of issues with it. It's by far perfect. But for me, I'm delighted. I mean, I literally just finished it just before the podcast, hand sewed the last little bit on it. Um, but it's like, and I was able to do it with my mom's old sewing machine, which was amazing. It has been used in about 35 years. And it's like, I'm getting so much joy from this little tiny cushion because I made it completely. The whole thing, I've never done that. And I like I, using the sewing machine was actually a big fear of doing so because it was just like, well, I'll mess it up. So I wasn't trying anything you know, for so long. And it's like, I made a cushion. <laughs> so he can yeah. sit up there with our little genome. Oh, mm. sorry. A little genome. 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 Flow genome. So, so you say good enough for now. And in the context was like, although you had this little positive meme, it's like what's the best that can happen? You still were holding back on your creativity. Mm. And things like that in life happens. I mean, I don't think I podcast probably in a, I don't know, it's been like a year or mm -hmm. two years. I, I, I've lost track of time, but, you know, a new little positive meme tool comes out from our friend Double A Matt. And he says in regards to like creativity or life, it, it, it never ends. There's no like, 
endpoint for creativity and expression. So when you're creating something or expressing something, you're you're coming from a point of view that whatever you're creating is good enough for now mm. instead of being a perfectionist or a procrastinator where you're like oh you know I'll put this off or like I really want to but I'm afraid or whatever inner judgment you have or even judgment of what other people may judge your work but that quote that he said was so powerful to the point where like here you are using your mother's sewing machine and producing, creating a beautiful little cushion pillow. Pillow. <laughs> That's another inside joke. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was just so neat to, to see you blossom because even though you had that, like what's the best that can happen? There's still blocks in there. Mm-hmm. And in regards to you being an artist, your amazing you know i've seen your work from like when you're in high school just incredible like pencil art you know charcoal and then i think you had some paintings in there too and a ballpoint pen so you know just trying to like encourage you to to do that right and there was, there was a block for you and with the work that we've been doing with our friend who does trans therapy. There, at least for me, in the evolution of what I've gone through in life, there's always been something that's helped me get past a little bit of a limitation. Mm. And so I'm a little bit wary when, just because I've lived long enough to see when someone says they had the magic pill or like the one technique or the, you know, I, I work with a healing device that helps people, you know, with, with pain and stiffness using microcurrent electricity. And even I know that that doesn't work for everybody. It's a very successful modality, as many are, but sometimes like some modalities will take you across the river on a boat and then you can move forward and you come to another like obstacle. And so we found recently that uh, this friend of ours has helped us tremendously to gain insight because I've done the meditation, you know, I've done the float tanks, I've done psychedelics, I've used my machine, I've done nutrition, I've moved my body and produced endorphins. And it's really neat because you start to accumulate different tools in your toolbox that you can use. And the most important thing that I found was is the ability to listen and for people to uh, not only like listen to themselves, but which is very powerful. That should, that's where it should start. And then once you understand yourself well enough, you're able to listen to other people on a deeper level and uh, hopefully through your own experience, help them get past like challenges. So like my point is, is that you never know who you're going to come across 
in your journey that will help you with your healing mm -hmm. and good enough for now is is part of that like and that's what's been helping us mm -hmm. recently it's just a little simple thing that a friend tells you that can have a massive impact on sort of maybe reaching another level of a being so you're talking about judy you know your 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 background growing up what was it that was about religion and sort of these different organizations where you kept falling into over and over and then at what point did you realize that these organizations or people were taking advantage of you? Yeah, I think, um, you know, in Northern Ireland, um, when I grew up, everybody went somewhere on a Sunday, you know, a place of worship on a Sunday. It was either the chapel if you were Catholic or a church, if you were Protestant. And then if you're Protestant, it went into a whole host of different, different, um, I was going to use the wrong word there, but, you know, either Presbyterian or Methodist or Brethren or Elam Pentecostal or you know, so many different types of churches here. Um, and, you know, when I lived in England, you know, people would give you directions via the pubs. Uh, but in Ireland, they give you directions via the, the churches because there's just so many of them. Um, it's the, the easiest point of reference. Um, so I grew up uh, Protestant, um, which um, is hard enough in its own way because you really get cut off from the, the history of Ireland um, and what really went on here. Um, you feel quite um, disconnected from that. And then, um, yeah, going to church all the time. We went morning service, evening service. We went to prior, uh, Sunday school before the morning service. Sometimes we went to two other services in the afternoon as well. So more Sunday schools. So sometimes there were three Sunday school services and two church services all on a Sunday. That's just too much <laughs> for anybody um, and there was so much about the church that I loved you know you, you, there were a lot of loving people there a lot of caring people there um, and I also saw you know so many times where I saw my mom reach out to other people and really love them and really care for them and visit them I used to love it when she used to visit the old ladies I've always loved old people um, you know and you know some of the stories that they would share and it was lovely um, but also I saw a lot of very dark sides and you know, the churches in Northern Ireland, but also in England. Um, and, you know, for me, I, I'm trying to think, I think everybody that abused me um, was in the church, um, you know, a leader in the church. Um, and that messes you up and that messes your head up and it messes your head up with what you think or who you think God is or the universe um, and for me, because there was so much punishment there, you know, my head grew up with this punishing God um, that no matter what I did, it wasn't good enough um, and never really, never really ever being a, feeling free enough to be, you know, strong enough for myself, think for my, my own self. I was, you know, constantly following 
well, what are the, what's the rules? What's the teaching? And I think part of the church for me, even when I, you know, grew up, because we lost, uh, my mum died when I was young. She died when I was 12. Um, six months later, we were put into the care system. So the care system in Northern Ireland is basically looked after by the government. And we lived in a children's home. My, me and my three sisters lived in a children's home for four months. And then uh, a, another miracle, we got fostered. Um, fostered by a lovely couple in Bangor who took us all on. And um, I didn't find out until about 23 years later that they were the reason why we were kept together because uh, the plan was to split us up. And they said, and how many are of you? Four. Um, yeah, who takes on three teenagers and a, and a 10 year old. And they took us all on and willingly took us on um, and volunteered themselves to take all four of us on. So just incredible and incredible to have that. And I think, you know, sometimes when things are really dark, um, or, you know, sometimes when you feel like you're not in control of yourself or or kind of other people in your life that you care for, to trust that the universe has got a plan, to send positive thoughts that way. And it's an incredible high where something looks hopeless, where just a solution can appear. Um, and, you know, we were so blessed to be part of that family. Um, and I now live five minutes walk from their door. You know what I mean? And hopefully sometimes I'm able to give back to them. They've given back to me so much. They're in their 80s now. Um, and even though, like, even though we had that opportunity and we lived there and, you know, they showed us, you know, stability and security and what was really more normal. And, you know, we'd, we'd worked from little girls. We were always meant to work. You know, I mean, you chores in the house, but we had a big farm. We were always working. There was always that pressure we couldn't just be kids we couldn't just play and have fun and relax and you know have the developing that you how you develop when you're a child when you are playing and making those interactions and friendships we didn't have that um and I find through you actually because you are just so much fun and you want to go out and play it's helped me (laughs) it's helped me have enjoyment and really enjoy life and enjoy the moment and do something for nothing you know when you're playing there's there's like zero production happening there's zero like there's not an outcome you mean for so many times when I was doing something I had to like I have to do this and then that'll be a finished article or a finished piece there wasn't really the enjoyment Um, and coming back to that phrase about it's good enough for now is that I can rest now I'm happy I can be present and that's such a huge thing for me because before when you live in so much fear and it's so systemic right across the board for so long there was always the sadness about what's just happened guilt shame so many things that you take on and then fear of the future what's going to happen that I was never living in now. I was never living in the present. I was never really enjoying the present moment. And when I did have moments, they literally were fleeting moments. You mean I could list not that many over the years where I remembered relaxing. I remembered switching off. I remembered not worrying about something. They were so few and far between. And now they're gathering momentum. There's so many more of them. Um, and, you know, for me, that journey has just been going on for so long you know in our foster parents helped to give us that chance where we did have time where we could be teenagers where we could um you know just go to school just do your homework not have a whole load of other kind of pressures and stress on um 
And for me, that's really when my self-healing started. Um, And I remember working so hard because I felt bad because I hated my dad. I hated people that abused me in my life. And I didn't want to live with fear because I could could see how much it messes you up. I've seen it with other family members that were older, how it screws you up. If you live with fear and if you live with anger and resentment and just a whole load of suppressed stuff that just rots you from the inside out. Um, So I remember working on it and I was like 13, 14 um, and carrying that on. And I felt like, you know, continuing on with church, this is the right thing. It's, it's, it's where God is. This is going to be the right thing to do. And unfortunately, we went to churches that weren't weren't safe places to be. They didn't have, you know, safeguards in place, safeguarding children, looking after vulnerable adults. Those, those policies weren't in place. You know, there was so many times where we were taken advantage of. And... You know, even though we'd been through so much, we were all still quite naive. I was very naive. Um, And thankfully, you know, was protected in different situations where it could have gone really bad. Um, But yeah, I went from that and carried on, you know, through church and was there. That was my whole social thing. You know, I mean, if I wasn't at school, I was at the church. Um, And then as an adult, I just carried on and did the same thing. I went uh, went away after my exams, went working in Scotland, went from Scotland to England. And then my sister and I, we both moved down to be part of a, a Christian ministry that we knew of from when a few years ago in, in Ireland. Um, and for me, I just totally enveloped myself in there. I, that was my life for five years. And I just uh, worked and I served. And I served as much as I could when I could um, it was a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of financial um, input was put in there as well um, to, for it to slowly unravel um, and for me basically to wake up one day to, with the realisation that I was being groomed and abused by one of the leaders. And as an adult, that is scary, you know, to go through what I went through as a child and then for it to basically happen again. It was one of the most terrifying moments, like even now I... I mean, it's still upsetting because it was so scary. And the shame as an adult going, how did I get myself into this situation? And then to run to the minister, you know, the leader of the organization, the only person I confided in about what had happened. And they were like, come stay with me. This is a safe place. You know, we'll figure this out. And over three days convincing me that it was my fault. And I believed it because I hadn't sorted all the stuff that I'd been through. I was still full of shame. I was still full of guilt. You mean, some I'd read, written, read a few places where when you're, when you're abused in whatever way, particularly if it's a physical abuse or a sexual abuse, that you take on the energy of that abuser. You take on that guilt. You take on that shame. That are the massive, two massive things to hold. And that fed right back into there. And I was like, it's my fault. I'm the damaged one. They're the adults. You know, I trusted them, like, with my life. And I just took it all on. And it was devastating because then I was completely isolated. So I'd already isolated myself, basically within a cult environment. I was isolated from friends outside of it. I was isolated from family outside of it because I was just weird at that point. There were so many rules that just you you just you don't function in society there was rules about what you wear 
what you can and cannot eat, what you cannot cannot listen to. There were rules about everything. Um, and there was so much security in the, that rule system because it made my life really straightforward. And until the point where I had basically that kind of abuse happen, until that point, I was blissfully happy because I felt like I'd made it. I was in this family that loved me and I loved them. And it felt so pure and it felt so right. And it felt like God was just, you know, I saw people get healed. You know, I saw miracles happen. And you just, you know, you see that, particularly as a teenager, when I saw that happen with this organization when I was, I think, 16. And it was a good friend that got healed. It wasn't just a random stranger. I knew them. I knew them before they got sick. I knew them as they were getting sicker. I knew them as they basically couldn't do anything for themselves. They were so sick with ME. And then to come out the other side and transform, it's like you see something that you think, this is the real deal. Hence why I ended up in that organization, you know, just believing it. And it happens and it's, it, it's like a, I've forgotten what the, the term is, um, but it's like brain control. And it happens little drip by little bit, by little bit, by little bit. And because I'd come from such a background, I was vulnerable. I really was that vulnerable adult. Didn't think I was, but I definitely was. And naive and trusting and the whole thing. And then suddenly getting to this point where now suddenly I'm trapped in this, thinking this horrendous stuff that's happened is all my fault. But then bit by bit by bit, slowly figuring out it wasn't my fault. Bit by bit by bit, realizing that this is the opposite of what God is. Because they were teaching me to be constantly judgmental about other Christians because they weren't in our church they weren't in our organization so they hadn't got it they got it wrong you know I mean never mind other religions never mind other faiths never mind never mind you know anybody that was outside the organization it was like they haven't got it right it was so prejudice it was so prejudice and I'd let myself become like that you know so critical so prejudice and realizing that I was the opposite of what I wanted to be. To me, you know, I grew up listening about stories about God and about Jesus, and Jesus was loving. He spoke to everybody. He befriended the tax collector that was ripping people off. He befriended the um, the prostitutes. He befriended the outcasts, the lepers, all the outcasts from society. He befriended them. He, you know, went past the leaders. He went past the people with influence and with money and went straight to the people that needed him, the poor, the needy, the widowed, the lonely, the desolate, the dying. That's where he focused on. That's where he paid that attention. And it was like, that's what I'd wanted to do. I'd been through so much that my heart was to help other people. It was always the point. And then suddenly I'm doing the opposite and I'm judging and I'm avoiding and I'm not... You know, spending time with all these people that are very, they were very well off. They didn't need anything else, you know, and helping to like educate their children in the Sunday schools. And they were lovely kids and I loved them dearly, but they didn't need it. You know, they didn't, they didn't need that actual kind of energy and help. And it's kind of like, if we're here and we're going to make a difference, in my mind, it's like, you got to give it to the people that need it the most. Um, So thankfully long kind of story within that I ended up getting through a night they figured out that I was had figured things out and I was trying to figure out how on earth I was going to leave this organization because realistically I was being faced being cut off um, and being cut off from all the people that I loved there um, and that was so hard 
Um, but eventually I got kicked out and um, it was super hard, but actually one of the best things. And then it was like a chance to start rebuilding myself and rebuilding my life. Um, yeah, and it still took a long time. And then I went from that straight into a relationship with a person who seemed amazing and loving and caring and just everything that you'd ever want and promising the best and then changing within days of being married worrying what's wrong what's wrong thinking it was all my fault again just went through that same loop um and it was crazy how many times did I need to go through the loop of thinking what's wrong what's wrong how have I got myself in this disastrous situation you mean of literally going into fear abuse controlled every day everything was controlled um how did I get myself back into that situation um thankfully going to counseling to save the marriage not for myself but then it ended up saving me not the marriage and realizing that I hated myself realizing that I had so much self-hate and self-loathing um and slowly kind of working through that and being able to look in the mirror I'd avoided mirrors for so long so long um, because I didn't like myself I mean I'd only look in the tiny little makeup mirror to do my makeup and stuff I wouldn't look in big mirrors because I just hated myself um and then realizing going actually I'm not a nice person I'm a loving person I care for people I'm always trying to care for people help people no matter where I was I was always making a difference in the little ways that I could um and then seeing me for who I really was and saying actually I'm pretty and I'm slim and I've got you know everything works properly do you mean realizing that the, the all the stuff that I was hating about myself wasn't true you mean it was all this other crap that I'd been pushed on me to kind of keep me down and keep me suppressed and keep me just controlled in that kind of controlled limited mindset and making making the shift and making the change but it's been a journey it's still a journey it's still sometimes it's still hard um but I feel like you know coming back to Northern Ireland I fought that I felt like I was being basically prodded on a weekly if not more basis by God the universe to come back to Northern Ireland and I'd just been through hell and I really did not want to come back because in my mind yes I've got people here that I love but it was helpful to have the Irish Sea between them and I could just go a couple of weeks see everybody and leave again you know coming back home was facing 18 years of a really difficult childhood of a really difficult difficult childhood that I had you know getting bullied at school um abused at home um feeling like I didn't really fit in even though I loved my foster family feeling that like I didn't really fit in there um also struggling to kind of trust people there had been so much and then all the stuff that had happened with the church that I'd gone to and how they'd taken advantage there was so much here in this small place where everybody knows everybody else and I was just like geez I can't do it I've just no I've had enough thanks and I fought it and I fought that for four months and eventually I gave in and went okay okay if you want me to go back home then you're gonna have to show me and you're gonna have to like work it all out and then the, the miracle started happening and it was just all these signs and you couldn't you couldn't couldn't argue with it and it just all happened and I came back home and that was like seven years ago 
You mean, and it's been such a journey since then and be, meeting Viv and being able to work, you know, give up the job that I was in and being able to work at Hydra's and being in an environment where there was so much healing for me, but also so much healing for other people. Um, she does amazing therapies there, particularly if, you know, in really traumatic situations. She's incredible. Um, and the float tank. And, you know, from the outside, thinking about the float tank, you're thinking, well, I'm in there for 60 minutes, 90 minutes, maybe longer in the darkness, no distractions, with only myself and my thoughts. You know, some people think that that would be hell, but actually because it's such a relaxing environment, it relaxed me, it made me switch off. Many times slept in the tank, would drift in and out of sleep. But it really is such an incredible environment. And I went in first time on the verge of having a panic attack and Viv having to do some havening, which is an incredible technique, to basically get me to agree to get in um, and then having a whole journey in that first float tank and I think for me it was that being okay with myself because I would have been I was always the doer you know, something needed done you know ask Judith and the doing was always a distraction because deep down I wasn't happy with myself deep down there were so many things that I still thought about myself, even though I'd come so far, there was still so far to go. Um, and almost kind of justifying my existence by doing stuff and helping people. And, you know, I, mean, I hadn't really thought it through like that because in my heart I was doing it with the right reasons. Um, but actually, boiling it down, it was distracting myself because there were so many things that I wasn't happy about within myself. And when you're in the float tank, there's nothing else but you in there. And actually to be content in a space and feel safe in that space was massive, was massive. And to realize that I did it. I didn't need a therapist. I didn't need, you know, somebody else in there to fix me. It was me and a whole load of salty water. And that was it. And that was, an, that was, that was a big shift. You mean, and as it's gone on from then. I mean, there's been so many things, but for me it was such a such a, a healing environment there to be part of it um yeah it's been incredible and meet so many other amazing people on their healing journeys as well um you I mean and for me it was like this was the reason i came back to northern ireland and then the next reason meeting you <laughs> you mean if i hadn't listened i wouldn't have been here would have been whatever doing whatever <laughs> i mean it's been and i never thought i'd come back home Never really thought I would settle back home. Um, yeah, and here we are. And you love it here. You mean, and how that works and things might change and we might go elsewhere and that's fine. But it's, you know, it really was, for me, it was facing fears to come home and face, you know, what I went through and the childhoods and the care system and everything that, that had gone on. It was really facing everything from like the early years all the way up. Um, and it's nice now to be in a position that, yes, I might have flashbacks. I might remember stuff that I, I don't recall now that I've never recalled, but I might come back later, but not being petrified of those and not being haunted by those. That was a major thing where I was just worried about what else was going to come up, what other demons were going to come out that I don't, you know, hadn't remembered. Um, but it's knowing that if they ever did, that I can handle it. It's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, and... Um, 
one of the the slogans that was out there at Hydra's is the magic is within you. And it's so true. It is so true that it's there. If you can take the time and sit and listen, and you're so good at doing that. You know, I've watched you, I've watched your example of doing that. And so many times where you're like, Judith, I think you need to go and spend some time with yourself. You're like, mm-hmm. sometimes I needed that. But it was the best thing because I'd avoided and ran away from myself for so long thinking that everybody else had the answers. You know what I mean? Rather than going, oh, actually, I've got it. If I only sit with myself, face myself, you give yourself that time, you'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. You mean, or you, and you get amazing people along the way that will help you on that journey as well. Yep, absolutely. That's what it comes down to, is to finally get to know yourself and be comfortable with yourself and all aspects of yourself, you know? And uh, like you said, it's having these other modalities and people to help you along the way. But ultimately, it comes down to you, you know? None of these things are going to save you unless you save yourself mm-hmm. or at least have that decision or choice to finally say, like, what what do I have? And you have you. And what can I do with that? What You almost take, like, an inventory of what you have at the moment. And then... It is magic because for me, I've had similar experiences where you feel like you have nothing left or you feel like you don't have the resources or you don't have access to things that perhaps people who are more fortunate have. But I think the common theme for anybody that's doesn't have much, but they realize they have it all in themselves, you know, is that somehow the universe, God, will sort of bring you things mm-hmm. present, the more present you are, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, it's magical. So you're saying, Judy, that Go ahead, you can drink some water. <laughs> but um, what was sort of the physiological effects? Because you were mentioning all these different kinds of emotions and feelings, you know, having panic attacks, serving to the detriment of yourself as a distraction. But what were like the sort of physiological feelings that you're having or suffering from just for those that are listening that may be going through that currently because you have transformed Mm. since I've known you I mean our our first date was like (laughs) almost a wreck right I I mean, I I almost, I just literally was like, I couldn't wait for this date to end and, you know, move on with my life just because you were just frantic and Mm -hmm. 
on the verge of like mania or something. I was just like sitting there going, holy shit, this is just too much, mm. too much energy. Like you were just running a million miles a second. It was just, but at a certain point, you know, and this is where like you excused yourself and you went to use the, the loo as they call it here, the, the restroom or bathroom. And, and, and it was, just like very cold mm. and uh, that's what the seed does it really does you know kind of bring everything up and you're able to like either get into fight or flight and panic when it gets cold or you gain control of yourself through your breath gain composure and I'm sure like as you said in that bathroom or loo that there was all these little phrases and sayings because the folks that own that cafe are Christian and you know people would like kind of tag in the bathroom or leave little like positive graffiti and from what I remember you were saying that it really like calmed you down so Mm -hmm. by the time you came back to the table it was like you removed your mask Mm -hmm. and you just settled into like Judy Mm -hmm. Not all the sort of baggage that you brought with yourself. You just let that go. You let the mask go. And and I saw you for the first time, like the real you. And I just had so much interactions with people that had that, I guess, ability or skill. Some people call it a gift to be able to see the real person behind the mask. And uh, that's when I felt like we bonded and yeah, reconnected and yeah. and, uh, and I was like hey it's okay <laughs> I don't know who do you think I am but I don't when I look in the mirror I don't look like a monster you know like, so you know like we really connected and from then on that's that's when we were together mm. you know and it was magical so what were your physical manifestations like your symptoms your you know like for me when I do public speaking there's like this anxiety that's there and I used to have like heavy anxiety and to a point where I and and sometimes I still do like I sweat profusely so as I look back on my childhood and the things that I went through that were like traumatic and it's all relative, right? What was traumatic for me may be like a walk through the park for other people, but to me it was traumatic. That's how I saw the world. I framed it. That was the lens that I perceived. And then over time, through all these tools, meeting amazing people, having breakdowns, having breakthroughs, living life long enough, meeting old people, hanging out with animals, little kids that are just so pure, you know, you start to like almost master yourself. So I'm able to not sweat as much or not sweat at all anymore, depending on the context. And in some ways, I'm encouraged to go deeper because with that sort of healing feedback loop, input-output, instead of shying away from things that I'm afraid of, which I still am, 
you know, it took forever to get this podcast going again, right? But now we're doing it. And uh, my point is, is that I'm able to find those things within myself because that's the sort of like being reflected back to me. And that was the same when I did the float tank. When you're left there, you realize like, hey, you know, my childhood was like perfect for me and, and like my journey. And now being an adult and maturing, uh, continuing to mature, it's, it never ends. But I'm able to face these situations or like go into them head on and then be vulnerable, being like, okay, yeah, it's still, I'm gonna sweat, I'm still, but the mask is off. And I think that encourages other people to feel like, hey, if that's okay for Tony and Judy to do, then, you know, and they feel safe. And even though they feel like all those sensations that build up, like nervousness, anxiety, um, I used to stutter a lot. And uh, so (laughs) what were your symptoms? You know, what... What are you still, well, at least notice that you improved tremendously because I've seen you improve like physically, you know, in terms of um, sweating less, like even through your hands and in your feet. Um, there was a lot going on with me physically. Um, I... I think most of it was really I was such a bottle upper you know everything I took on I wasn't the kid that would have tantrums or scream or shout or whatever I was quiet I took it all on I felt as if it was my fault you know so many things the things that happened even when I was really young I thought was my fault what did I do how did I upset them that's why they treated me so badly um and that's why I continued. I continued on that same cycle, um, thinking that everything was always my fault for a very, very, very long time. I think it was, geez, 34. <laughs> Until I started realizing, oh, this isn't all my fault. The only fault that I had was I allowed it to happen. I was the common denominator. I was allowing this to happen. But, you know, physically, I, I was having issues from such a young age. I mean, and only really... Um, getting on the top of it the last few years. I mean, and I'm not still fully there, but I'm almost there. Um, but I think for me, it was just a destroyed nervous system, you know, constantly on fight or flight, you know, sending stress hormones up all the time. So um, I didn't allow, allow myself to sleep. I would only sleep when I was absolutely exhausted. And I did that as a child. And I remember my foster parents can testify, never getting me to bed, you know, still rattling around 12, 1 in the morning, even though you have to get up early for school. Um, just would always fight sleep. And obviously sleep's the, the best thing in the world. You know, you taught me that. I've never slept so much in my life. Literally, I don't think I'm making up for it. Um but if you're never getting enough sleep and then you're just constantly living on your nerves, um, like I had the craziest metabolism. I would always eat more than any man I ever knew. Um, at more than my dad, at more than my foster dad, at more than, you know, so many guys. It's just like I just had this crazy metabolism um, and I was a lot lighter then as well. Um, so just running through the calories all the time. Um, but, you know, physically wise, there was... 
And I didn't know, you know, I didn't know the terms panic attack and depression. I didn't really know that when I was younger. And it wasn't until, you know, I'd been working in hydros for quite a while and seeing so many people come in and out that were traumatized, that were maybe struggling with addictions, that um, uh, maybe self-harm, you know, so many different things. And so many with, you know, problems with depression and anxiety and having panic attacks and helping people through having panic attacks. I mean, one of the ladies remember early on having a panic attack, basically before she was going into the float tank for the first time and helping her through that process and helping so many other people that were really, truly scared of getting in the float tank, even though it's so benign. It's 25 centimetres of body temperature water. It's just this lovely space for you. But so many people were so afraid of doing it. And it's like, I get it. I basically was on the verge of having a panic attack before I went in, but it wasn't until years later I went, oh, that was a panic attack. I didn't know. I just knew I was freaking out, but I didn't know, oh, that's what that is. That's what that's about. I mean, and, you know, swimming in cold water. I'd love swimming in cold water since I was a little girl, since I learned to swim. I remember swimming in um, the, the, the river that comes off the mountains here in Northern Ireland, Tullymore. And geez, I loved it. And it was freezing. It is Baltic. Even in the height of summer, that place is Baltic. It is the coldest water. Um, And I just remember loving it. And realizing later, actually, that's because the cold switches off your vagus nervous system, basically. It calms it right down. Because you basically, yeah, you get to that point where your body thinks you're going to kill itself because it's getting so cold. But you get past that bit and the fight or flight stops. And then it's just you. And I think that's why so many people love cold water swimming. Because that's what happens. It just cancels out all the noise, all the stuff rabbiting around your head, pain in your body as well. Um, yeah, that's when things happen. And that is supposed that, you know, to be drawn back into swimming in cold water was just normal and natural. I'd done it all my life, usually by myself. And, you know, there's very few other nut cases that wanted to do it with me. But now there's loads of them here, which is great. Um but a lot of that was because of just the mental anguish that was on in my head. But physically as well, my body was sore. I'd been sore from a little girl, you know, and there had been a lot of violence. Um, and living in pain was normal. It's just what happened. And that's just what what I lived with. I didn't really know any different for a long time. Um, and a few, couple of other accidents that I'd had when I was a teenager as well, my own fault. Um, I just had chronic neck pain and that's just what I had. And I just okay. lived with it. And as an adult got worse and worse and a couple of car accidents and whiplash and everything else thrown in there, I just lived in constant pain with my neck. Um, and sometimes I didn't realize when other things had happened, when I was in other pain with other areas of my body, I'd get to a breaking point. And I'd be like, what's wrong? What's wrong? And then the realization, oh, I'm in excruciating pain. My brain didn't seem to know. I think because I'd been in constant pain for such a long time that it wouldn't really recognize it properly. Um, And then, you know, later on, different doctors and consultants going, geez, you have a very high pain threshold. How have you coped with these symptoms? How have you got on with your life? And you're like, I didn't know any different. I just had to get on with it so you know there was a lot of physical pain mental anguish self-loathing and you know physically wise uh, I was always sweaty 
always sweaty. Even as a little girl, primary school, people didn't want to hold my hands. They were like, no, you got slimy hands. I remember the, the term slimy hands because I was so sweaty. I was so nervous and anxious all the time. Um, and later on when I got fostered, uh, my foster mom was like, this is not normal. Because I would just soak everything, you know what I mean? And sometimes it wasn't, I didn't feel particularly stressed or I'd be cold and I'd be sweating crazy. Um, and they, you know, did all these tests and diagnosed me with hyperhidrosis, which is basically excessive sweating. And I had that from young and it's hard because you're like, particularly as a teenager, geez, there's so many different emotions going on. Plus I'm in care. Plus there's a whole load of other stuff going on. Plus exams. And then you've got excessive sweat, sweating on top of that. It's just like, you know, doing my exams, I literally had to like get a whole load of the hand tiles and have them. Otherwise I couldn't write on the paper. I'd, I'd soaked the paper so badly I couldn't do it. Or the artwork, I always had to have different, you know, paper tiles and stuff all over it to make sure that I didn't destroy the work that I was doing. So uh lived with that for so long and it's got so much better. And it was clearly just a nervous condition. You know what I mean? It was just... I think living in that kind of chronic stress mm-hmm. all the time. Um, trying to think what else. Going to the bathroom, always an issue since I was a little girl. Um, I think from about four. Um, and it was, again, just that bottling up. The bottling up of all the emotions because we weren't allowed to express when we were upset, when we were angry, when we were, you know, we weren't allowed to express all of all of that. Um, and you, if you did, then you were basically in line for more punishment um and you know to being able to unravel that and it hasn't been until you know there's been different times where I've been able to feel like I could be myself but you know I mean you've shown me such a, a unconditional love and such a consistent love that yes you've seen me at my best but you've also seen me at my worst but to know that you've seen me at my worst and you still love me is incredible. That's an incredible healing to have that and to know that no matter how much I freak out or lose, lose, lose it, that you still are there. You're here, you're committed, you love me. Um, that's incredible. That's incredible to have that and to see how you love me and then being realizing that I need to love myself more. I might have got bits right, but there's still, you know, there's still a journey to go there. Um, and But the more that I find that I am able to be happy with me and what I see with me, the more comfortableness I can feel within me, I'm more comfortable with other people and other environments, particularly environments so when it is stressful, that I'm not there full of nerves and fear. I'm realizing that actually sometimes when you are nervous, it's a good thing. It's your adrenaline pumping and it's good. It's nothing to be afraid of. Um, you know, in situations where normally I would freak out that I was okay. And actually I was the calm one in those situations. You, like, in a, like when it was in emergency environments, I was great. I'd be like switched on, not panicking, nervous, wasn't even thinking about them. And I would just get on. And I remember different situations where I wasn't supposed to be the person that was in control. I wasn't the manager at the time, but I was actually then telling them what to do and, how, you know, what we needed to do in that emergency situation. But when I was outside of an emergency situation and it was like day to day stress, particularly if it was with like, you know, family or kind of close things, that's when I felt out of control and I would give everybody else my control 
and I would be like the whole big nervous wreck, wreck with inside it. But eventually over time, you know, I mean, with lots of different modalities, I've helped Viv's work really helped with the Havening as well. That really helped me a lot to face, you know, different fears that had happened where I would have generally been very triggered. Um, and then actually Vivian McKinnon, Vivian McKinnon um, from Hydrace. Um Yeah, that was a real big game changer where I was able to face situations where normally I would freak out and I was paused. I was calm. I wasn't freaking out. And my brain hadn't gone into that whole freak out kind of zone where it was fight or flight central. That's a major game changer because when you're in fight or flight, like I realized you just have to ride the storm. I mean, you can't give people a whole load of different advice that they're literally in full on fight or flight. They they can't hear you. They can't receive that information and they can't do a breathing technique or whatever techniques they, they can't. You just need to let them ride the storm. Um, and it's been able to kind of make that switch. And for me, you know, when I was at Hydra's and when I was working there and seeing other, you know, people coming in and out in their healing journeys, it was realizing that actually it's all about the blueprint. And it felt like the blueprint that I'd had for so you know, so long from so young wasn't really the right blueprint and it wasn't serving me. It was like you've got your electrical circuit, but it was wired basically really badly. Um, and it was having to change that circuitry and having to take out you know, the glitches that, you know, kept coming up and kept coming up and kept coming up. But to change that, it's so fundamental. It's my, it was basically my foundations. Scary. It's not, it wasn't easy work to face it. But when you do, you know, from then on in, it's like when you change the course of the ship, even though it might only be 1%, it totally changes the end destination. You mean over like a period of like how many miles you've gone totally in a different direction and it might seem tiny this wee difference that you've made but it's huge you know like later on down the road um and there's been so many of those um and so grateful for so many people that have shown me and sometimes it's just a random person that has said something and it's just totally stuck in there you mean or sometimes it's the ones that are right there loving you and have been loving me for years even though I couldn't always receive it they're still there loving me still there consistently being there or praying you know on the sidelines and I don't even know or I mean and I think that's something that's beautiful no matter what you've been through the beauty always shines through it always shines through um and whether I was ready to see it or not or even think of it there would still be moments where things would happen people would interject or little animals would come across your path or you know just some little sign that would come through and you think we're loved so much, you know, in the universe is there, whatever you believe, the universe, God, creator, whoever that kind of being is, they're there, they've got the best for you. Um, and when you kind of relax more into that and allow it, you'll see all these little signs. We have gifts every day, every day. Like I wake up, I can see the trees from the bed and this morning, there's the most amazing little birds. We sat and watched the little birds, a little bullfinch, most beautiful bird, gorgeous colors, all these little chirpings going on, little bumblebees, flowers, and, you know, just, there's so, there's so much of it, whether it's a good day, a bad day, a winter day, a sunny day, it doesn't matter. They're still there. They're still there. There's so many lovely little gifts that we get every day, whether we're really 
taking the time to notice, taking the time to listen. And it, it is those times where it is making that time, going out for those walks, giving yourself that five minutes at lunchtime to get outside. And for me, so many times when I find that I rest or I feel relaxed or I have like a healing moment, it's in nature. So many times. I mean, it just seems to come so much easier there. And I think it's almost because I'm not doing anything else. I'm just being there and just having that walk or that cycle or that swim or just sitting watching, you know, the world go by, just taking those moments. And, it, you know, as long as you've got it, just making those little moments makes all the difference. You know, and then if you have, you know, if you had had a history of having a lot of bad days and you have a good day, the decisions that you make on the good days make such an impact, make such an impact. And I think, yeah, it's hard because, you know, my heart is to help people. You know, sometimes I talk a lot because you kind of think, oh, somebody could learn from this, somebody could learn from my journey. Um, but then realizing, particularly with AA, that we're not here, we don't have an agenda like that. Do you know what I mean? My, I always thought that I've gone through so much horrendousness for a reason, and it must be to help other people in those situations, to help other people and give other people hope. And thankfully, that happens automatically. You don't have to do that. People can just see from your own example. Um, you don't have to be out there doing a whole load of different things. You know, big things. You always think it's always the big things. Some, but sometimes it is just that hug or that that smile or that encouraging text or something. You know, it's quite often it's the small things. But actually, our purpose here is to enjoy life, to enjoy the beautiful world that we live in, to celebrate what you have. Um, and there's no agenda and there's no like plan and there's no like, well, you have to get this. You get your tick before you can leave. And it's like that shifts everything. Like, I'm still trying to get that into my brain. Mm -hmm. But it's such a shift. Oh, yeah. But then I find that when you, when you take yourself off this, I've got to achieve whatever it is in life or what my purpose is, when you take that away and you're like, oh, I'm supposed to just enjoy this, that's when you enjoy the moments. That's when you enjoy the now. And I feel like that's when you make the most impact. Absolutely. Yes. 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 Oh, figuring all this out. Yeah, it's the beauty of conversation and talking out loud and having listening ears. Hmm. You definitely shared so many wonderful things. You've come a long way. You've been through hell and back with the handbasket of amazing, luscious delicious yumminess <laughs> gems for everybody listening but like you're saying life itself is the re reward you know like play itself is the reward there's no like goal or outcome yeah not to say that those things are useful for giving you direction but to achieve it and then realize like that it wasn't the thing that you thought it was going to be, you know, you, you live life long enough, you start to realize that, you know, and 
um, you start to realize like what truly matters. And uh, you certainly are an example of that, Judy. So grateful to to share life with you, mm-hmm. to be married to you, to continue the journey with you. Just seeing your healing while we've been together, it's been amazing hearing your story. You bring light uh, and inspiration to a lot of people. Um, and you continue to be brave and look inside yourself and you're less accident prone <laughs> as a result. <laughs> Massively so. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's cool because that was driving me nuts. <laughs> Seeing you like hurt yourself. <laughs> On like a daily like basis. life isn't hard enough. <laughs> but it was like self-abuse, like just bumping into stuff, like getting mysterious bruises. It was like, holy shit, you have a high pain tolerance (laughs) and you just like barrel through tank through like Mm -hmm. all kinds of situations you know and i'm like uh, a little more grace there a little more grace but but that's all about being present yeah i mean people you know would labeled me and my sisters as accident prone it was like it's just because we were never present yeah we lived in fear and that mindset anxious about the future sad depressed about the past never being right here Mm -hmm. it's incredible how much that shifts yep well folks we're at the end of this amazing comeback podcast of hangry and horny with judy flow real and tony flow real we will continue on with more stories and um, we just want to thank you for taking the time to listen. And I want to thank Judy for having the courage to um, coming on to this silly, funny, and rad show. And uh, yeah, we just look forward to you know sharing more of the journey and and uh, being a support to all you out there. We're really grateful that you've given us the time to listen and hopefully it's been of um, tremendous value to you. So with that, Judy, thanks for coming on and look forward to having you on more and more with Flow Genome. And uh, thanks everybody for listening. Ciao for now. Thank you.